Hey everyone, thanks for joining. Today I'm speaking with Jason Littlefield. Jason is the co-founder and executive director of Empowered Pathways. Hey Jason, thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me, I appreciate it. So I've, I saw your interview with Carrie um, and Carter on um, the their, their podcast, like Unsafe Space. Mm-hmm. And then I lately you've been putting stuff out with uh, Eric Smith uh, and you're, I guess you're, I don't know if I want to say you're starting to work with him, but you're doing a, a different version of, you know, for lack of a better term, diversity training, but you also talk about like um, SEL. So if you can go into a bit of that and talk about a bit about why you started uh, Empowered Pathways, and then we can go from there. Okay, for sure. And uh, I guess maybe just to kind of clarify my, mm-hmm. my work with Eric, uh, mm-hmm. because you kind of mentioned it there. So I am, I am working with Eric on mm-hmm. a couple of different projects. I'm proud to be a part of uh, what Free Black Thought is mm-hmm. and what that's going to be. And Eric is also, uh, you know, with the Empowered mm-hmm. Pathways team. And so is uh, Xander Keek. You know, I've, I've really built, built this team and looking forward to uh, doing some really good work mm-hmm. with, with this group of people. So Empowered Pathways was, you know, I established it in 2017 as a <clears throat> kind of a, a, an alternative. Uh, I built it under the model, uh, you know, kind of the field of dreams mm-hmm. idea of build it and they will come uh, because around 2017, I started to see the shift happening uh, and from 24, beginning 2014, I, w- I became a social and emotional learning specialist uh, in the public school system, where I began, you know, really began studying human emotion and looking at things like self-awareness, self-management, relationship skills, social awareness, and responsible decision-making. So that's what social and emotional learning is. And around 2017, I started to see the shift moving away from uh, cultivating and fortifying the individual to this new, uh, the successor ideology, as I've heard it uh, referred to. So I established Empowered Pathways as a, a, a different approach uh, for one day that the things would be so on the surface that uh, it was obvious what we were doing. Okay. When you mentioned that, I'm just going to give you a bit of an anecdote. I used to work for a government up in Northern Canada. Okay. And when I first started working there and you know, I was moving to an Inuit community. So, you know, it's something I hadn't experienced. And so all new employees were made to take um, a cultural, and I was in the pilot program. So the, I, I started with them in 2014 and that was the first year they'd done it. So it was like a cultural sensitivity training. And then also to give people more of an idea about, you know, Inuit communities and Inuit life. Now, part of it was really well done. They had this gentleman who was a, you know, PhD in archaeology who'd lived up in Northern Canada for about 30 years, but he was a little dry. It was like listening to someone read a textbook, Mm -hmm. but still, I mean, it was informative and we had Inuit people from the community in the meeting as well. And, you know, explaining things a little bit more in depth, but then there was a diversity trainer and, Okay, like I said, we were all new employees, so none of us really knew each other. And the two people I was sitting beside, 
I mean, we gave ourselves some shock looks. I remember one thing he said, he was talking about a book. I can't even remember the name of the book. And the guy who wrote it, he said, well, it was something Cohen. And he said, well, this person's name is blah, 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 Cohen. And his first name is Jewish. and His last name is Jewish. So he's twice Jewish. And this guy wrote about how, yo, in Hitler's mind, Hitler thought he was doing right. So because he's a Jewish person, he can get away with it. I'm just saying, you're like, this guy's teaching us diversity. And I mean, <laughs> I was just like, I mean, we were just shocked. Like it just, you know, okay. Just stating that the, someone is Jewish is not wrong in and of itself, but just, oh, because of his name, this and that. And so he can get away with saying that, you know, like, you know, in my mind, it was like any reasonable person can say that Hitler himself thought he was doing good. Right. Right. You know, in his right. worldview, he thought he was doing good. And that's a, I mean, I understand that argument, but just to force it on and, you know, we had yeah. to give in a, you know, force it like on, so we had to give in a, an assessment of this after we were done. Cause they wanted to know how it went. And that was one of the things I put, like I said, you know, this guy was, you're just saying that. And after that, I mean, he, he loses you. Like, how is this guy supposed to be teaching us, teaching us how to be respectful and diverse and all this when he starts off on that path? Yeah. I mean, there was a couple other things like he made factual errors and he made like, you know, he was talking about the crusades. He said, oh, there's only a couple of crusades. I'm like, no, there was way more than a couple of crusades. <laughs> right, right. right. <laughs> you know, yeah, so I, I, <laughs> I used to have to facilitate some of these trainings. Uh, and one time somebody raised their hand. Luckily, it wasn't me at the front, uh, but one of my co-presenters, he asked, he was like, isn't this stereotyping? And I was in the back, and in my head, I was like, yes, you know, and thank you for uh, for not asking me that. And so I've, I've been facilitating and attending these trainings uh, since around 2017, and one of my, you know, I heard you mention the, uh, the feedback that you had to give. Uh, the feedback that I gave three years ago, you know, they said, what should our next steps be? And I said, we need to, you know, have a, this was three years ago. I said, we need to have a discussion to see if uh, critical race theory is the best approach for dealing with issues of race and racism. And we never had that conversation because, you know, I, I was like, this is going to, this is a really going to be a really big issue and it's causing uh, a lot of division and psychological basis for prejudice, you know, so I was trying to, I feel like I was trying to get out in front of it. And that's kind of what empowered pathways was because it, you know, I created a set of tools and practices and mindsets that I was, that I, in my mind, I was hoping to get out in, in front of all of this, but you know, for the past few years, I've just been a, a, a one person, a one person team that's, still been focused on a, on a day job, you know, and yeah. focused on parenting and, and different things like that. Okay. And the no. world didn't look like, look like this. There wasn't an obvious need mm -hmm. for something else. You know, there wasn't, there wasn't the, the awareness that, uh, Oh, Western civilization is under attack here. That's what, that's what this whole thing is pushing against. So, well, okay, there wasn't an awareness of it, but okay, and again, maybe this is because you know I, I use the analogy of a you know frog thrown in a pot, a pot of boiling water. Like I was away from North America from 2002 to 2014, so the start of 2014 is when I got back, and I started seeing all this stuff, 
And I'm speaking to my friends. They're like, yeah, whatever. That's just normal. And I'm like, no, it's not. Right. So, I mean, like I, I noticed it right away. Um, and then in, at the end of 2014, when I went up North, one of the things I noticed immediately, because, you know, small community, you could go to the local bar and if you saw the cars in the parking lot, you knew who was inside, you know, it was, it was like that tiny. Uh, so, but it was, so yeah, I'd speak with the social workers. I'd speak with the people who worked with the health department and things like that. And all the people coming up and working on this, it was emphasis on victimhood. Mm-hmm. It was emph- everything was done about how the Inuit were victimized. And, you know, I don't want to take away from all the awful stuff that was done, you know, but there was nothing done about how to get over that. Now it was all focused on, okay, you know, you're, you're an alcoholic. Well, that's not your fault. That's the fault of, you know, white people. That's the fault of the colonizers. That's the fault of the missionaries bringing alcohol. And, you know, there is a lot of truth to that, but that doesn't help the person who's an alcoholic right then and there to get over that. Mm -hmm. So like when you're talking about empowerment and I mean, and they would use the terms empowerment and things like that as well. Right. But see, they get, yeah, they use both terms. They get to, they get to uh, use step on both sides of the philosophical uh, discussion. So, I mean, how do you work with something like that? Like, especially with kids, like how do you get them out of a victim mindset to think, okay, yes, bad things have happened, mm-hmm. but this is how I'm going to overcome them. Well, those are the things that we are, we're looking to, uh, to work on and, mm-hmm. and to do, especially, you know, through, through mindfulness, through mm-hmm. uh, metacognition and a explaining, uh, the two worldviews. I feel that that's <clears throat> that's kind of the the basis for uh, explanation mm-hmm. is to explain the two different worldviews. Is to explain, you know, the the classical liberal worldview of the enlightenment and the individual <clears throat> truth, goodness, and beauty, and then the other, you know, whatever this. I, I don't know what historians will call this. What is shaping place right now? But it's essentially kind of postmodernism, neo-Marxism, whatever it is in in those realms, and explain that this this worldview perpetuates individuals as either an oppressor or an oppressed. And and you're, you know, we're reduced to that. So you can either operate in this worldview or there's a way to cultivate and fortify the individual. And if if that's the route that you choose to be empowered well then we will uh, obviously look at metacognition what are your thinking processes you know i heard you mention eric so eric talks you know with his uh with the empowerment theory it talks about the intrapersonal the uh interactional and the behavioral so really look at what is happening inside our own thinking processes uh what are we thinking about ourselves what are we thinking about other people? You know, do we feel that a young person, do you believe that you are in this perpetual state of either being an oppressor or being oppressed? Or do you feel that you are a unique person uh, that it odds are if you work hard and work on developing yourself, you, you will end up being something you'll get to pursue your own, own well-being. So really laying out that choice for young people 
because right now I don't think they realize that, that there's a choice. There's a dominant worldview being placed on them. And, you know, the, the reaction to that is our brains are wired to accept the culture that is placed upon us. So we're placing this culture on these young people and they assume that it's true. They assume that what the, what the trusted adult saying is real when essentially uh, the worldview that is being projected right now is not, uh, I want to say not real, but obviously it's real because it, it's happening right here. <laughs> but It's not beneficial to humankind. But I mean, okay, like, again, these are just things I've been noticing. It's people are looking for more and more ways or different ways to make themselves a victim. Like, you know, okay, take Demi Lovato just came out recently as demisexual or non-binary or something like that. Now it's okay. I, I don't know anything about her. I know she's a, you know, an artist and, you know, singer, but you, it's like we've given victimhood so much currency. Yeah. And, and I think I may be totally wrong on mm. uh, demisexual, but mm. I heard, I, believe I heard somebody explaining it in the distance. And again, I may be completely wrong here, but I heard it's that you prefer sexual relationships to people that you have an emotional connection with. I, I, I don't know. If, and I was like, Oh, that's that. Uh, I thought that was the normal yeah. process. <laughs> so now normal quote unquote, you know, normal is an, a, oppressed so it's it's this endless cycle of of pursuing and chasing and grabbing hold of victimhood okay. like you said yeah, but now okay when we had you had the whole uh i, I don't want to call it like, i guess you can say empowerment or whatever but the the self-esteem thing right you know like you can be whatever you want which i don't think it's a bad thing to tell kids you can be what you want but i don't know if they're telling kids well you can be what you want if you work hard, like, you, you know, and realistically, like, you know, if there's a kid who's not that tall and, you know, they're not going to grow, you know, they're not going to grow up to be, you know, over six feet or six, five or whatever. And that kid wants to be a professional NBA player or, you know, <laughs> you know, professional basketball player. So with like, is that kind of tying in with the victimhood thing? So like you can tell a kid, okay, you're going to be, you can be whatever you want. And it, it turns out, you know, that kid's not good at basketball. So is that, does it, that deflate the self-esteem and that kind of thing or? Uh, yes. And so what we're, what we're seeing self-esteem inflating people's self-esteem is not a healthy idea. Mm -hmm. uh, giving, giving them tools for like and resilience. And uh, I'm kind of, I'm kind of blanking here, but uh inflating self-esteem is setting people up for failure. In fact, uh, there was a big self-esteem movement in the, you know, the, the mid to late nineties. Um, I've been in education, been a public educator for the past 21 years. And even prior to that, uh, I worked in, uh, with elementary students when I was a college student. So I started to notice this, the, the self-esteem movement, you know, of, oh, you're so great and you're so 
special, you know, to these, to these kids, um, you're smart, you know, just really boosting them up. And that was the same time period of the, everybody gets a trophy. Yeah. Uh, so, and I began thinking, I was like, wow, it's like this generation is being, uh, socially engineered, uh, <laughs> in a, in a, in a detrimental, in a detrimental way. And then we, you know, the, we see where this generation is now. This is the generation that hates, uh, Western civilization and that is leading the charge of the, uh, with the successor ideology. So self-esteem is boosting people's self-esteem is not something is not a positive practice. Yeah. Okay. I mean, and it, and it does, and it does feed into the victimhood. So <clears throat> boosting the self-esteem and then uh, setting people up for fit, like it does, it it's the perfect, it's the perfect feed for that. Like, like you were hinting at. Okay. I mean, okay. Just, going back to when I, okay, trying to remember when I was a little kid and, you know, I had teachers who they pushed us mm -hmm. and, you know, if they saw potential in a kid or like, you know, like I had teachers who pushed me and said, okay, you know what, you can do this. If you put the work in, it was always put the work in and study and do work hard. So, I mean, there's gotta be a way to give a kid a, you know, self-esteem and make them feel proud of something like, you know, not everyone's going to be good at, in, in woodshop. Not everyone's going to be good in, you know, like whatever, if you take a home ec course and you can't, you know, you, you burn water type of thing, right? Like, like I, the way I'm looking at it is they're not giving the kids the tools to get that self-esteem themselves. They're just saying here, you're perfect the way you are. And I, you know, if you're telling someone they're perfect the way they are, it doesn't leave any room for self-improvement. It doesn't leave any any room for self-improvement, uh, self-development. And it also doesn't leave room for uh, changing, you know, be, if I'm accepted, you know, because I, this is the way that I am, maybe I don't want to change. Yeah. So that, so there's also no room for that. A and in schools now we don't, we don't really teach and push that message of, of work hard be a good person because it's a, it goes, that is counter to the uh, modern narrative because work hard and be a good person is considered um, upholding white supremacy attitude. That, that's, that's not my take. Just so you know, that's, 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 that's not my take, but that's the, that's the, uh, that's the facts. That's the facts of what uh, educators are being taught. And then the practices that they are doing, because a they believe that somebody is telling telling them truth and what is real, mm -hmm. and most educators have a really good heart and want what's really best, but we're using ineffective tools. Okay, on that, so you know, someone who's gone through and they're, they've been a teacher for let's say ten years or fifteen years, and this stuff starts coming in. Now, they could be a very dedicated teacher; they want to do it. Like our, our teacher, I mean, obviously I'm asking to read minds here a little bit, but are teachers doing this because they're worried or, you know, they'll, I just got to toe the line. Otherwise I might lose my job or are they, or are they buying it whole hog? All of the above mm -hmm. different, different ones. 
you know, and I've, <clears throat> I, I've seen and encountered all of the above. And mm -hmm. I was once in the position position to where I took the stance of, I just going to hold, you know, hold the line and, and do what I'm told and try to have conversations and open dialogue along the way. But after I would say three years of not having the conversations about we need to, we really need to look at our professional practices and their impact on the social and emotional well-being of, of human beings after not having that conversation, um, you know, and, and even the, I started going to people, you know, on an individual basis around 2018, noticing that, Hey, th these trainings that we are going to, and the way that we are talking about race, it's, if you look at the philosophical foundings, it's rooted in, in Marxism and it's not rooted in liberalism. Like there, this is where the, the divide is. And because of that, this is, this is creating the societal chaos and turmoil and division, this, these practices that we're doing. So after kind of being pushed to the outside uh, for saying some of these things and waiting for conversation to happen and it never did, that's when I, I stepped out. You know, um, 19 days ago, I ended at least on on hold my 21 year career as a public educator because the conversations within the field didn't happen. So now I'm hoping to step out of the field and work with some amazing people uh, to hopefully have a broader influence and impact on the K-12 system and also corporate trainings. Everybody that's, that's having these uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion workshops, uh, I hope to influence and counter what is happening because none of those, actually I'll probably, I can't say none, mm -hmm. but at least none that I've attended, have heard of, are promoting diversity, equity, and inclusion in ways that intentionally cultivate and fortify the individual and strategically find ways to increase societal cooperation. Okay. So on this, like you'd mentioned the, you know, social and emotional learning and, you know, some of these things are terms. I'm, you know, like I said, I, I'm an IT geek. Right. And so I just started hearing about a lot of these things and like, I didn't, you know, critical pedagogy and all this stuff. Like, I mean, I just fell into it because, I mean, honestly, I think, you know, I've mentioned this a few times, like I only got into it, I only got into reading about this stuff because I was being called a white supremacist for criticizing Islam. And it's just like, okay, where does that come from? You know, and yeah. that's all I wanted to know. So if you wouldn't mind going in a bit about like how you're doing it as opposed to what we were talking about just now, like, like what we've been talking about for the last little bit. Okay. Well, uh, so the... The status quo, the orthodox social and emotional learning, SEL, as of December of 2020, shifted its uh, definition and shifted its focus to be a lever for equity and social justice, which, you know, on, 
on the surface, those, those sound like good ideas, but when we talk about equity, when school districts and, and systems are talking about equity, the idea that they're pushing is equal outcomes. Uh, even the school district that I've worked in for the past seven years, one of their top priorities is pushing this idea of equal outcomes. And that's, to me, that, that's, that's, that's dangerous to push, to push those ideas in the, in the culture because the cult, you know, the culture is the dress rehearsal for the political. And I don't really like to get political, but when it's essentially communism versus liberalism, maybe it's time for people to get political or philosoph philosophical on those. So Castle, which is the uh, national SEL organization, they are now transforming this idea of SEL as a lever for equity and social justice. And I'll say 99% of the schools, school systems that, that do social and emotional learning are using the CASEL model. So that is what, that, that's what will be happening. And my model uh, or the Empowered Pathways model, the humanity-centered, we center uh, human dignity. And by centering human dignity, what, what I mean by that is <clears throat> what, what you see here in front of you and the voice, what you're interacting with, that is, that is my human. That's the, my biology, my conditioned personality. That's the human. And beneath that is the being part. And all beings, despite, in spite of our cultural differences, our racial differences, our geography, in spite of all of those things, all of our beings share the same two things. And that's the desire to avoid suffering and the desire to alleviate suffering. So if we can, as a, if you just think about it, if every person that you interact with and that you see, uh, if we're able to recognize that beneath what we see and are interacting with is something that is just like us and it wants to avoid suffering. And when it encounters suffering from others, it's going to work to alleviate that. Okay. Now doing that mm -hmm. will eliminate all the harm. And I know that we can't always do that all the time, but that is something that, that, that I talk about we should strive for. Rather than seeing each other as this or that, seeing each other as we see the same, and then we can also, through practices that celebrate our common humanity, then we can find <clears throat> issues to where our, our human sides are connected. We can see each other as we see ourselves. And that whenever we, those two things are in sync and we're always practicing seeing each other as we see ourselves, sharing our stories with each other, connecting with each other, then we're creating psychological systems that prevent us from harming the other person. Okay. Now, I'll play slight devil's advocate here now. For sure. I'm going to use an example of when I was in um, college but I mean, I, I, and then I'll kind of try to put that into a, a school, like, you know, K through 12 uh, frame. I was a weird kid. Um, 
I was a okay. I was a bad student. I got good grades. <laughs> you know, like, uh, but a friend of mine was taking a course, and I was taking another course. Uh, we we're both in. Uh, we were both taking poli sci courses, and he had a different teacher. I had uh, a big midterm coming up, and his class was about to go in for like a. They his teacher did it. His professor did it slightly differently. They had tests every you know every couple of weeks. So he had one of these tests coming up and I had my midterm coming up. I said, look, you know, I've studied and whatever, but I just want to see if I'm actually doing all right. So I, I went into his class or I went with him to his class. I spoke to his professor. And I said, do you mind if I take your test? And the guy kind of looked at me like I was strange. Like, you, know, you want to take my test? Right? But I did it. And then a couple of days later, my buddy comes up to me. He's like, you're an asshole. I'm like, what are you talking about? He's like, you got the best grade in the class. <laughs> <It was> just <laughs> Because the teacher held it up. He was like, well, he not held it up. He was like, we had so many, you know, like so many A's or any B's. And he's like, an other got an A. Like, but like, now I'm not saying teachers should do that in K through 12, especially like younger kids. But if they're pushing, you know, to study and pushing kids to work hard, there's got to be some sort of reward at the end as well. Right. So, you know, like you, you get, you got the little chart and kids get little gold stars and whatever, or, but is there a way to do that where a kid who's not doing well, and it could be, you know, for all kinds of reasons. Now, is there a way to say, okay, well, you know, little Billy here's or little Susie here's got the best grade in class, blah, blah, blah. And, and you're, you know, obviously you want to reward that child for doing well. But mm-hmm. Is there a way to do that where you're not actually, you know, I mean, you can't control how someone feels, but is there a way to do it where you can mitigate how bad someone might feel if they're like, you know, got the worst grade in class or something like that? I feel it's the most, the most important thing in, uh, in that classroom mm-hmm. in all classrooms is the relationship that each teacher has with, each individual student, um, you know, and not to, not to not answer that question, but depending on, you know, it's, it's really never a good idea to, to public publicly do the, do the grade breakdowns. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's, and maybe because I was always that like C student. Yeah. No, uh, <laughs> but that's, Rewarding that is not necessarily what we want to reward. Uh, it's always good to reward and acknowledge and praise the effort mm-hmm. that that the students are putting in. So if we have a really good relationship with our students and we can see effort they're putting, see how much how they are working, then we're cultivating their own learning. Because what we what we would hope to do as you know, as an education pr- profession mm-hmm. is to cultivate the individual potential of all students. And a way that we do that is through establishing solid trusting relationships and then also really monitoring their progress and their effort and praising them for their efforts and having, having them reflect on their learning you know, mm-hmm. so that so that they can. And that's one way that we can become empowered is by reflecting on our own learning, reflecting on our experiences, and then we can make those shifts moving forward. OK, uh, now, 
I went to a lot of different schools. My mom moved to like we we didn't move houses, but my mom was like, "Oh, I heard there's a better school here." So from kindergarten to grade six, I went to eight different schools. Okay, you know, so quite a lot of schools, right? So uh, a lot of different teachers, but one, yeah, one of the teachers I had, I believe, it was third grade, and that's the way she kind of did it. So you know, people got the gold stars or whatever, but you know, on your report cards, like so, let's say there was a kid. You know, the first report card, it was C's and D's. And the next one went up to C's and, you know, C pluses type of thing. And it was, and, you know, she would reward the child for making that effort, making that improvement. So, I mean, if you've gone from D's in the first report card to B's by the last one, I mean, you might not be the A student in the classroom. You might not be the one getting the best marks, but I mean, if you start off with A's and you stay with A's, Okay, I don't know want to say that you haven't improved, but yo, know, you're kind of static. But a kid that goes from D's to B's, so like, I'm not again. I'm you know outsider looking in, but from everything I'm seeing and everything I'm reading, it's I'm not seeing that they're not rewarding the effort type of thing. They're just oh, we'll just give them a good mark, we'll pass them and let them go along. Like, shouldn't I mean that's where I, I see some some of these things going wrong. Like if you rewarded that effort. The mm-hmm. kid knows it's the effort that's getting him the reward. It's 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 not just getting that you know A or B. It's 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 the actual effort that the child put in that's getting the reward. Well, and so that idea, I'll say from I may have my years a mm-hmm. little off, but around like 2010 mm-hmm. till about 2017, uh, there's a lot of work around growth mindset and developing a growth mindset and rewarding the effort and really noticing and acknowledging the effort. <clears throat> so there, there was a temporary uh, emphasis on that, but around 2017, you know, the, the social justice ideology, uh, if, if you really examine what it is, and then this idea of growth mindset, they, they are counterproductive to each other. And I, I have noticed that this, idea of growth mindset and how popular that was years ago has really kind of died down in favor of this new ideology. So we are, we are just kind of, you know, moving, moving people along uh, and not giving them the education that they need. Yeah. I mean, again, like it's, I always go, you put the effort in, you do well, you go, okay, I don't have kids, but you know, I had nephews and nieces and they're trying to do something and you know, they're really trying hard. So yeah, Mm -hmm. you don't succeed, but you tried really well. It's, you know, you can, you can reward them for that. And you can say, you know, you tried really well. You didn't, you didn't succeed, but what did you do wrong? Where, you know, what could you have done better? Just, you know, I mean, even if it's just building a Lego set or something, right. Right. And if those are good practices to keep, you know, uh, a school year is just a nine month snapshot in a human being's whole entire life. So if we can learn, learn some of these, I heard you mentioned, you know, use the example of like third grade, somebody going from D's at the beginning of the year to B's at the next year. So maybe when they're a fourth grader, they start out making B's, right? And then they they keep 
they keep progressing. And not only are their marks good, but they have a deep interest in learning. They have a deep interest in developing their character, developing their personality, developing hobbies and skills, you know, that they become this uh, ultimately a, a self-actualized unique individual. Yeah. On the education thing, I'm just, I'm just curious. And I know you can't answer that because it's, you know, it's, you got a country of uh, 330 million people um, and it's, you know, state to state, it's different, but okay. When I was a kid, again, I don't know if it's a budgetary thing, but you know, in high school we had wood shop, uh, our high school, just before I got there, they used to have an auto shop. They didn't have that anymore. But even things like Homac, and you know, we had an AV club where you could learn how to, you know, we had to make a claymation movie and things like that. But these were, you know, you had your core courses and these were, you, you took an elective every year. So, you know, you can take Woodshop or you could take Homac or you could take the AV club, things like that. Like how much of that has gone away in schools? Uh I, it's hard to say. Uh, I will say that I, through STEM and through some other, but mm -hmm. also now in the past, like one year, STEM is now coming under attack. Yeah. Uh, but I had the honor of teaching at a, at a technical high school. Uh, mm -hmm. I taught at a, at a school, shout out to uh, Trimble Tech. Uh, you know, it, it was, it was a, an inner city high school. So we had, we had a lot of, there were like 13 other, uh, schools in the city and Trimble Tech was one that students had to apply to get in. And every student that, that came, there was a major, you know, wood shop, auto shop. Uh, we had a lot of different programs. There was, uh, medical work, uh, pharmacy tech, all kinds of, certifications that kids could get. So I think in, in a lot of our, maybe our larger cities, there are some specialized schools and where there's multiple high schools, there, there are becoming some of these specialized schools, but what was interesting. So I left, I left there in 2009. Uh, and I remember <clears throat> that the rubric our admissions rubric was kind of under attack. Uh, they started to, because we were strictly, you know, students grades and behave, you know, you had to apply to get in. And it was, that was one of one of the beauties of it. And then towards in 2009, 2010, 2008, even, they really started kind of this war on uh, meritocracy that, that we're, we're sensing now with a lot of these schools, I noticed that that started way back in, in 2009. So to answer your question, there is a, a push to some, to some of those schools and trainings. Uh, but then again, the past couple of years, uh, I know that STEM is now somewhat under attack, uh, with, with the social justice ideology. So I don't know if those are still being uh, pushed or not. I, I don't know. I noticed, I don't want to give it up, but I think around 2015 or 16, I started noticing they went from, some people started going from talking about STEM to start talking about STEAM and they include mm -hmm. arts in there, which I mean, okay, there's nothing wrong with arts. Like, you know, like you, you know, nothing wrong with fine arts. There's nothing wrong with writing. Like these are, I should say they're like, you know, these are also viable things, but, 
to mix that in with, you know, science and tech, mm-hmm. I think that was a mistake. I mean, it's look, okay. You need creativity to be a scientist. I mean, you have to want to look at, look at how, uh, problems in different ways, but I, you know, I can understand to make like a well-rounded person. Okay. You know, you're just in a, in a very technical field. Okay. You take something to take your mind off it. Like, you know, learn a musical instrument, learn to paint, learn to draw, you know, write poetry or whatever. I, I can understand the benefit of that, but I don't know. Am I just making too much of that? Like adding the, you know, changing STEM to steam or is that. A- it, <clears throat> it does seem interesting. Uh mm-hmm. You know, I don't, I get the idea of, you know, a well-rounded person, but I, I also believe that somebody that is in a vibrant STEM program, Mm -hmm. that if they wanted to pursue some sort of art, then they they could also do that. You know what I'm saying? Like it's, it's not an either or situation, but I wonder if bringing in the arts kind of waters down the the science Um, and I you know I'm sure people could have a three-hour conversation about that particular question and I don't really I don't take a side but it does it definitely makes me wonder you know and like I said you know okay I'm not a very artistic person you know I I have trouble drawing stick man but you know I, I get that like you know we had an art class I took it learn how to do pottery and stuff. I mean, I did, like I said, again, I was not very good at it, but it was just, okay. I, if you can get kids to try all kinds of different things, especially, you know, when they're, you know, middle school and things like that. And yeah, they might find something they like and they can go work at it. Right. Mm-hmm. But this forcing of it is what, you know, like I hated being forced to do anything as a kid. I hate being forced to do something right now, you know? So you know, like I said, I like the fact that we had those, you know, I think, they, I can't remember if they call them electives or option classes. So yeah, I took woodworking. I took that art class. I took, you know, like I said, visual, like the, you know, the audio visual stuff. Like I, those are things that just kind of interested me. So I just went and took them, but yeah, like forcing that on kids. I just find that, okay. Obviously I have to force the, you know, the reading, writing arithmetic on them because they need that. Right. But, yes. but you know, all the other stuff, like I, I just don't see how, Forcing a kid to go into an art class when that kid is not going to like it is a good thing. Like, I mean, oh, let's leave the finger, finger painting in kindergarten aside for a moment because that's different. Mm-hmm. You know, like that's, you know, they're, they're really young, but I'm talking about like, you know, middle school and high school. Like, I think, do we not give kids enough choice? Like, do we not give kids enough credit for saying they, what they're going to take? Or are we just letting kids or, you know, like. like that's you know, a. That's an inter- that's an interesting question. Um, you know, I think that there is there are some choices, especially you know w- when you get up into the to the high school level. But then again, at the same time, if ultimately the purpose of an education is to completely develop an, an individual then I do think it is the, the system's responsibility to expose that child uh, to different things throughout, throughout their career. You know, you can kind of attribute it to make, making your, your child 
try vegetables. You know, they may not like it, but this is good for them. And they may, and they may end up flourishing. You know, a child may say, ah, I don't want to take that theater class or, you know, I got stuck in, I got stuck in this theater class, blah, blah, blah. They do a play. They turn out like, oh my gosh, this is something that I really enjoy. And then they find through that experience, they find something that became an integral part of of who they are. But then again, you also get people put in a situation and they have horrible, horrible situation, horrible uh, times. So I do believe that it's the response. It's actually the responsibility of the education system to allow for autonomy and choice as well, Mm -hmm. but also to make very, very clear and specific what, what the, the mandates are. And right now I do have a lot of issue with some of, some of the mandates and ideas that are being forced uh, on children. Right now, my main concern is that we're forcing a worldview and we're forcing a particular narrative on, on kids. And it's not necessarily just subjects and things that they can choose, but society is actually forcing a, a whole entire way of viewing the world. Yeah. I mean, okay. Like I've been looking at some of this stuff and you know, the, like the, the anti CRT laws, I don't want to get into the, but okay. Like take Huck Finn. Like I, I was joking around with someone about this the other day. So you take the book Huck Finn. Now I think it's a good book. I'm not saying kids, all kids should read it, but I think if a high school wanted to teach that or a middle school wanted to teach that, I think it's a very good book for kids to read, you know, get an idea of what the thinking and everything was back then. Now you could teach that, you know, in the, in the classical sense, right? So, you know, you can talk about, and okay, so I'm going to get some of this wrong because it's been a long time since I read Huck Finn. Like, you know, <laughs> but at the end, when he, when, you know, Huck hears Jim crying and wanting for his family. And then, you know, he's like, oh, well, he's just like me. He's, he misses his family. Like I would miss mine. She's a common humanity, you know, and lets Jim go. And you can talk about, you know, I kind of equated that to, that was Twain saying, okay, you know what? America's in its adolescence. They're coming of age. They realize they did something wrong and they're letting people go free. That That's kind of how I had that in my head. Now you could have, you know, quote unquote, a woke teacher who takes mm-hmm. that and says, well, here's Huck, you know, exploiting Jim's emotional labor and making himself out to be a white savior. Now you can take <clears throat> a book like Huck Finn and you could mm-hmm. totally pervert the meaning of it. Right. You know, so it's, you know, there is a question of what you're teaching, but there's also a question of how you're teaching it. There is that question of how you're teaching it. And, you know, I I heard using a couple of expressions that you said, you said, you know, woke teacher and then common humanity. Mm -hmm. My, my experience with woke teachers and woke educators is that they, they have strong visceral reactions to that phrase, common humanity, like will have strong emotional reactions to where they uh, just have a hard time under accepting that, you know, that, that we have, that we do have a common humanity. We, as a species, we have a shared history, you know, so there's there's something in the in the ethos that whenever we present the idea that 
we are a shared species. You know, we, we, we are, we have different cultures and different languages and different habits and those are all beautiful, but we do have a, a shared history. And ultimately the, the facts at the, at the moment in that book were that Huck saw Jim as he saw him, as he was able to see himself. So that goes back to what I was saying earlier. Whenever we can see somebody as we see ourselves, we are unable to do that person harm. We're just unable. So Huck, he was like, Oh, you have to, you have to go. I can't, I can't do this anymore. So that's the, that's the power to that. And that's a, that's one of those liberalism ideas of seeing each other as we see ourselves. Yeah. I mean, okay. Like, again, I, I, you know, like I said, I don't have kids or anything. And I look at this from a very, very selfish point of view in some way. Like it's, you know, when I retire, like, you know, we have socialized healthcare in Canada, uh, you know, government pensions and this, like your social security or whatever. When I retire, I want the people, like I want my doctors to be well-educated. I want the people handling, you know, the pension, the, the government pension funds to know what they're doing. You know, so yeah. I, I'm looking at this from a very selfish point of view. I, I want the people who are doing the, the financing to know that two plus two does not equal five. <laughs> yeah. You know, like, yeah. So like, shouldn't more people be up at arms about, I mean, I, I'm following a lot of parents and I'm seeing a lot of this stuff. And I mean, like, isn't the whole point of an education to prepare that, like, don't you want well-educated citizens who will contribute well to society instead of someone who's just there looking for fault in everything? Like when you can find fault in the word master bedroom, I mean, where are we going? And I saw something yesterday, someone complaining that the reason that the asphalt is black is because it can sh continuously let black people know that they're always being driven over. I'm like, like, how do you come up with that? <laughs> <clears throat> You're, you're woke. <laughs> yeah, <I know. laughs> well, you know, uh, I, I, let me see. I wanted to go like so many different places, but let me start here. So the fact that a you're in Canada, B I'm in Texas, you know, you come from an Islamic background. I come from a Christian background. So, we're really at what society would like. Why are you guys talking? What What is your interest in this? So the fact that we are concerned about, you know, Western civilization, because the idea that you you had of a, a competent and a character based society, that's that's, you know, what what you think we would want. You would think that every like. To me, that's an idea that once it was discovered, like, oh, this is this is the way to do it. You know, you create systems based off of competence and you create systems based off of character and you reward people for their work. You reward people for their efforts and you allow people this ability to pursue their life. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I... I like I said, some of these things, but, but now we're not. And I don't believe that everybody realizes that the ideology that, that what we're pushing forward now is not a continuation of that idea, but it's the complete opposite of that idea. 
and it's purposed to destroy that society that builds its systems upon competence and character. So hopefully that there will be enough people to say, hey, stop. Because if this moves, let's say, if it's another 10 years in the culture, then those people that were educated under that worldview and that system and were not pushed to develop themselves, they'll be, they'll be the ones that are, that are in charge of the system. And they're building a system based off of always, you know, talking about the asphalt, like you've said, and always finding, finding the problem because the critical social justice worldview is to constantly see, point out, talk about the problem because in their mind, the problem is always present and it's always been present. So we're going to talk about that and then we're going to just dream of utopia. Hey, again, with like, you know, the, the whole thing around the, I don't want to get into the whole thing around the CRT, anti-CRT bills, but anything like that, people talking about school choice, you know, homeschooling. Well, I'm like, all of this is our stopgap measures. If you don't mm -hmm. fix the academy, if you don't fix the colleges of education, if all you're churning out are teachers who think in this one way, you know, if a neighborhood wants to get together, you know, and get a little pod school for their neighborhood so the kids can have something a little bit more local and, you know, fixed more on what that neighborhood kid, what those neighborhood kids need. If your only choice is what's coming out of, you know, the colleges of education, it's, there's a problem here. So, I mean, like, I think a lot of people think of, okay, we just got to get school choice and it's going to be fixed. It's like, no, there's, there's something behind that. There's, you know, there's, there's that there. I mean, I think it's Illinois, Washington, um, Idaho, which is weird. Cause I think they had one of the best bills, you know, the anti-CRT bills, cause it was just a reaffirmation of civil rights. Mm -hmm. They are requiring, you know, diversity training as part of the teacher certificates. So, so like, I'm just like, okay, we've got, you know, it's, like the K through 12, that's one aspect of it, but there's so yeah. much other stuff that, I mean, it's sometimes it's the educator training, yeah. like, like you mentioned the educator training. And that's why, <clears throat> so with empowered pathways, what we're really focusing on right now is professional learning and professional development and working primarily uh, with adults yeah. and, you know, with, the, with the educators, because that's where, that's where the need is. Yeah, I mean, I, I just, like I said, like, you know, you can fix this for the moment, but until you fix that source, you're not going to get, things are just going to keep getting worse and worse. I mean, I think another thing that was really bad is I, around the time I was graduating high school, so I was, you know, I graduated in 87. Um, we ju They just started the push for college, college, college. And in Quebec, it works mm -hmm. slightly different than the rest of Canada. High school goes up to grade 11. Then we have this thing called CGEP, which is kind of like a, a junior college. And then you go on to, then you go on to do your bachelor's. So instead of going to grade 12 and then four years for your bachelor's, you go to grade 11, you take CGEP for two years, and then you go do three years for your bachelor's. So it's the same amount of time, just broken up slightly differently. Now in the CGEP field, you had two, two streams. You had a pre-college stream or pre-university stream, and then you had a technical stream. 
So the technical stream was a three-year program and you could take like chemical engineering or electrical engineering. You know, we had uh, radiography te techs, like all kinds of different technical fields. But it was always the, the go to university, go to university, go to university. But I'm like, okay, you know what? Like I, I'd mentioned woodshop, you know, like I liked woodshop, but you can teach a kid math while you're teaching them woodshop in some respects, right? You know, yeah. angles, measurements, counting things off. So when did that, like, like I said, I saw it around the, 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 like the late eighties, like, you know, 86, 87, when I was getting ready to graduate, that's, you know, the, the student counselors and all that come in, they just start pushing all that. You know, where did it go from, you know, being a plumber is a normal profession, being a mechanic, you know, like there's, there's nothing wrong. Like where did it go from? Okay. Well, those are low professions. I mean, you know, you need your car, like you, you need right, <clears throat> right, yeah. Uh, so I remember, and and one thing. So I'm I'm in Texas, and there's always been a strong contingency of people, you know, that that value the trades and mm -hmm. see see that those are a honorable professions and b high paying professions. Mm -hmm. But I do remember around the early 2000s, a, a huge push that everybody goes to college. Uh, you know, somewhere, somewhere around the early 2000s, like it was, I started teaching in 2000 and then, so maybe about 03, 04, mm -hmm. a, a few years later, just a huge net industry push. Everybody goes to college. Everybody goes to college. So there, there was that moment in the early to mid 2000s of everybody goes to college and, and a less emphasizing some of the technical professions. Now, what's interesting is that push everybody goes to college in the early 2000s. We now know that those were the people that were A, heavily indoctrinated and B, financially crippled by paying that much to be indoctrinated. And now these are the, these are the adults that are in charge uh, tearing down, tearing down the system. Okay. I mean, that's another thing, like with the college stuff, you know, like, you know, like hearing about Harvard with what's going on with the Asian kids and all that, like, I don't think you're doing anyone any favor by boosting up their SAT scores to get them into college. You know, mm -hmm. again, like I said, if, if, and you know, I'm not, a, you know, I'm not a policymaker, but I always thought, okay, so if you had a kid who, throughout his high school career, you, you know, you saw that improvement, you saw them getting better and better and better, saw them, so they might not have reached the marks they need to get into Harvard, let's just say, but they're, you know, they could do really well in a local community college or whatever. But if that kid's got his heart, you know, they got their heart set on going to Harvard, and you know, instead of Harvard lowering the standards for that child or that kid at that point, they're not only our child, they could say, okay, you know what? We like you. We like your improvement, but you're just not quite ready. If you did a year to prep and take, you know, like if you're going into whatever law, right? You do a year, you take these courses, you study these things, or you're going into med school. Okay. You, you got to, you know, you, you need to bone up on your biology. If they gave them a year to prep and gave them that, those skills so that, you know what, you've got a place ready for you, waiting for you the following year. But just mm -hmm. do this and get like you know a B average or something. I don't know, like sets of metrics for them. Like, wouldn't that be a better way than just saying, okay, you know what, 
you're we like you we need you because you're you know brown black whatever you know you're a woman uh, you know like it would it would be a better way if you are trying to build a society uh that is that that builds its hierarchies <laughs> on competence and character but if you're trying to build a a society you know and put people in jobs and then do everything to where competence and character don't matter, then you just reward people for reward or punish people for the traits they were born with. I mean, like, again, like I just, I just see that. Like I'd spoken to, um, uh, he's, he's in, he's, I think he's finishing his physics degree right now. And he was saying, I, I think I'm just going to get out of school because it's, you know, it's a, it's another, he's another guy named Eric's, you know, young black man. And he was just like, yeah, I don't want to be a diversity hire. I don't want to be, you know, I don't want to be told this all the time, but if let's just say he was put into that, you know, in the, in the, in the physics department because he was only black and he wasn't qualified and, you know, either a, you're going to flunk out and just not go back to school. Or let's say you switch from that to whatever, you know, African-American studies or gender studies or something. And you're told that this was because the white man oppressed you. I mean, right away, that's, you know, that's okay. That's why I didn't do well. It's, it's, again, it's not letting people take responsibility for themselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I think that, that my hope is that <clears throat> once people are in these situations and they're thinking like, Hey, wait a minute, that people can realize like, Oh, that's this, there's this postmodern neo-Marxist worldview. And then there's the, mm -hmm. the liberal worldview that, Western society has been operating under for the past 300 years. I'm going to stop. I'm going to unhook, unhinge myself from these bad ideas. And I'm going to return back to here because if, if we can begin building our systems based off of these things again, you know, and just unhook from the bad ideas. Yeah. It's, I, again, I don't know. Like I, I'm looking at this stuff and I'm like, okay, I, I, a little off far afield. A friend of mine runs this organization called Ideas Beyond Borders. And what Ideas Beyond Borders does is he's a refugee from Iraq. He grew up under Saddam. Uh, he became a U.S. citizen last year. Okay. Uh, it was last year, or the year before. I get my. But anyways, you know, he, he's recently became a U.S. citizen. And what Ideas Beyond Borders does is they translate books on science and philosophy, and they make them available for free in the Middle East. So he translates them into Kurdish or well, Arabic, Kurdish and Farsi now. And they just put them on up on their website and people can have them for free. So people like Steven Pinker, Steven Pinker said, you could take all my books and do them. I think Sam Harris did something similar. And, you know, so, and then during COVID, they were doing a lot of work on, on COVID and things like that. But he was telling me that he put out a call for translators in Iraq because he wanted local people. And mm -hmm. in the first day, you got 15,000 applications. Wow. Now I'm looking at that. I'm like, you know what? They want this stuff and we're just pissing it away. We're, we're, you know, we, we are, we are. And, and we get, I'm sure you got to this point, but to where you just get hungry for knowledge mm -hmm. to where things just got so stale and so bogged down and you figured out that this this idea is just 
that the bottom of it is just destruction and that's all it is, then you, you want to get back into the classics. You know, I've, I've, I, I started rereading uh, some of the Stoic philosophers and just really getting into reading some John Locke and reading those things that excite and invigorate us and inspire us to be that free individual. Like, like the people that you were just talking about, they, they wanted that. So as I feel that there's something within us that makes us crave knowledge and crave understanding and find meaning making in our world. Yeah. I mean, like I, you know, when you're talking about going back to the classics is when I got back from overseas and I started seeing all this stuff and then, okay, you know, I read all the enlightenment thinkers, you know, I did a poli sci degree, you know, I like Milton Mill, Hume, Locke, all that. But, you know, that was back in the you know, late 80s, early 90s. So it was a while ago. And I was just like, uh-huh. okay, or like, go back. So, yeah, when I came back in 2014, I reread all that. I mean, okay, I, I don't want to say I read everything. You know, I, I read Milton and Mill again. And I, I read, you know, Locke and Payne. I read some Hume. I, I just wanted to go back and look at those ideas again to make sure that this is what I'm doing. And that's and then I started reading all the critical race theory stuff. Like, you know, I, I spent... I warped my mind. I spent like 18 months reading almost nothing, but oh no, it was just, I, once I started reading it, like I started with white fragility and I just figured, okay, I'll just read this book and this should give me a good idea. And I'm like, I was reading it. I was like, where the hell did this come from? And then I went back and I started with Derek Bell and, you know, worked my way all the way down. I read all kinds of bizarre papers and, you know, okay. Take someone like Derek Bell, like the guy, I'm, Bell wasn't stupid. Bell was mm-hmm. not, you know, he was an intelligent person. He's, you know, he's writing legal cases and I can see where his frustration was. Like, especially the the first paper I read by him uh, serving two masters. And he talks about how, you know, education shouldn't have, it wasn't schools that were, should have been desegregated. It should have been education that was desegregated, which yes, if you think about that, it would have been much better to fix the p- broken schools than to mm-hmm. bus kids for, you know, an hour in each direction. Right. Or, I mean, another thing that I found out recently that it happened was the, the Rosenwald schools, you know, they were all shut down because they were black schools and because of Brown versus the board of, Edu- you know, like mm-hmm. you can't have segregated schools anymore. And these were some of the best performing schools in the country. And it was like, yeah, okay, you yeah. did yourself a huge disservice there. So, I mean, I, I get the frustration and I get where that comes from, but it was just like, you know, it's like you got four good cornerstones for your foundation, but then what you're laying is like watered down cement. So nothing can, nothing proper can grow on it. Right. Well, and also, <clears throat> you know, Bell and Crenshaw, they all attribute, and even D'Angelo, they all attribute the Frankfurt School scholars. You know, they yeah. all, they all attribute and, and even, uh, and even Marx. Yeah. So you would kind of have to think that they understand that they are pushing the oppressor versus the oppressed narrative in hopes of overthrowing a free capitalist society. So you, you have to think that somewhere within their intention is that they know they are fueling this chaos and this division with a political agenda in mind. Yeah. Look, uh, I don't want to keep you too, too much longer. Uh, it's been great talking to you. If you want to, like, if you want to give a last sales pitch for, you know, empowering ed, uh, or sorry, uh, empowered pathways, <laughs> we were talking about that before, uh, and it, or, you know, your way of doing things or advice to parents, please go ahead. 
Okay. Uh, for sure. So in Empowered Pathways, I am promoting a, we are promoting a humanity centered uh, mm-hmm. social and emotional learning. We are offering humanity centered ways of looking at diversity, equity, and inclusion. And essentially you can look at, look at the website, the compassionate humanism framework is all there for, for free to look at. And essentially what we are promoting is, you know, we talked about human dignity a bit, uh, what, what centering dignity means. And then building upon that is developing mindsets of inquiry and compassion rather than developing mindsets of fear and judgment. And there's also a tool on the website for that. And then also promoting three pathways of practice. And the pathways of practice are, are practices that build awareness and equanimity for self and others. So we really focus on self-awareness, some mindfulness practices, metacognition practices, and then practices that build kindness and compassion for self and others. And then finally, practices that celebrate our common humanity and break the walls of indignity. The overall idea is that by engaging in those practices constantly throughout our day, throughout our year, throughout our life, then we're actually cultivating the neural pathways that lead to peace and resilience. Okay, great. Well, thanks a lot. And again, sorry, I should ask if you want to just let people know where they can get a hold of you. For sure. Uh, contact at empoweredpathways.org. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Jason D with two E's, Huben. Okay. I'll put all that in the description. Well, Perfect. again, thank you very much, Jason. It was great talking with you. Great talking with you as well. Thank you for having me. And thanks everyone for listening. And I'll be back.